they were imagining what was going on. Missionaries from our own denomination serving in Tijuana, Mexico last Easter, just a week ago Sunday, experienced an earthquake of a magnitude 7.2. Sitting in our, in our apartment that afternoon, the missionaries wrote back to us to inform us that they were okay. That everybody in their team was okay. They really hadn't, they really hadn't experienced any substantial damage. But in his email, he said it was unnerving. The windows were rattling. The house was shaking. You looked out on the road and saw cars were rocking back and forth. He wrote, as the intensity gradually increased, he said, you reach a point where you realize, this isn't my imagination. This is real life. And then you notice... It only strengthens. It's getting worse. And you wonder, when will this ever end? When will the shaking stop? He goes on to say, I appreciate now so much more those biblical references of the earth shaking. It is such an unreal experience. He said, it really makes you realize your insignificance and your powerlessness, but it was such a great reminder of the one true God who is all-powerful. After this experience, he wrote and said that his family quickly concluded they missed the hurricanes back home in Florida. (laughs) At least you've got a few days' notice. The psalmist, in many ways, if you picked up his language at the beginning of Psalm 46, is in a very similar experience. He writes that the earth is giving way and the mountains are moving into the heart of the sea. There's cosmic upheaval. And what we see in Psalm 46, and what I want to show you this morning, is that whether it's the physical shaking of the earth, or whether it's the shaking that exists in your heart and in your soul over circumstances in your life, that God is a God who is present. And we see in Psalm 46 that it's the presence of God in his life that brings peace and brings wholeness and gives him hope for him to face what comes next. As we look at Psalm 46, uh, three, three uh, sort of dividing it up into, into three, three parts, we're going to see the confidence that we can have in life due to God's presence. Confidence in life due to God's presence. Secondly, the effects of God's presence. And finally, the fulfillment of God's presence. I'll say it again. First, confidence in life due to God's presence. Second, the effects of God's presence. And finally, the fulfillment of God's presence. How can you have confidence in life when there's so much shaking and so much upheaval going on? He begins in Psalm 46 and verse 1 that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, almost alerting us to know what I'm about to tell you is very, very troubling. It's very, very scary. And he tells us in verse 2 that he will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is cosmic upheaval of the greatest imagination that you could ever experience. Commentators have looked at this passage and have tried to figure out, is this physical? Is this a physical uh, is this physical destruction that he's describing if you remember uh, five or six years ago that terrible tsunami that hit in Southeast Asia 
And some of the documentaries that show just the pandemonium that was going on as people completely unsuspecting on vacation at the beach were suddenly engulfed by raging waters. You may have often thought, well, a tsunami, I mean, it doesn't really sound that powerful. It's just some water, right? And you see those images of people running for their lives, of mothers holding on to their children only to have them ripped away from their hands because they couldn't hang on from the force of the torrential uh, flood. You think of the images of, of, of the earthquake that hit in Haiti. Fortunately, our brothers in Mexico didn't experience that type of damage, but the reports that we got from Haiti... And the amount of damage that was done, you can see that if this is physical that the psalmist is writing about, there's much reason for us to be worried and to be fearful. He says, even though these things happen, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, we will not be afraid. Perhaps Calvin looked at this passage and John Calvin says, well, I think it's really maybe more of a spiritual, hyperbolic language to the storms that go on in our lives. If you're like me, you almost get tired of watching the news. How much more can we take? How much more job loss and housing markets crumbling? And some of you here are experiencing this firsthand. You know what the psalmist is saying when he says that the earth is shaking. You feel that in your heart and in your soul. And the question is, how do you go on? Where do you find confidence and peace in life despite such cosmic upheaval and challenges? When you think back to the, to the Garden of Eden and you think back to how God created the world on those first six days and He made divisions and He separated light from darkness and land from water and you read verses 1 through, through 3 and you see that it's almost as though the psalmist is describing a moment of uncreation. A moment of uncreation when God carefully delineated how this world should function and where the water should stop and where the, earth, where the land should begin and light and darkness and the psalmist is looking and if you were reading this it sounds like there's a moment of uncreation it sounds like sin is reigning despite God's presence it sounds like sin is at work undoing what God has done continuing on when you look at verse 6 he takes this even a step further and says the nations rage the kingdoms totter But the Lord utters His voice and the earth melts. Do you see this wonderful parallel between the city of God and the kingdoms that are existing out in the world? He pictures the city of God in verses 4 and 5 as a place of great peace and of great confidence. And even though the world is being shaken and the mountains are trembling, and even though the kingdoms are raging against one another, he looks at the city of God and he says in verse 4 that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And in verse 5, we see the picture of why there's such peace and such confidence. In verse 5, he says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. It's the presence of the Lord in that city that makes it a place of great confidence and great security and great peace. 
the kingdoms are tottering, but this city will not be moved. This is the habitation of the Most High. He says that there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And if you're thinking back to that Genesis account and thinking of creation, it seems that the psalmist has this in mind. As we're told in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, that there's a river in the Garden of Eden that watered, provides sustenance, provided a life for the trees and for the plants in that place. Living in sort of central Florida and living on the coast, uh, you're probably like me, but my wife and I have always commented, on a drive, when you pass by a lake or you pass by the ocean, it's almost as though you can feel stress sort of relieved. What is it about the picture of water and that beautiful panoramic of the ocean or of a lake that just almost brings a sense of relief and peace? The psalmist seems to be keen on this and he almost harkens back to the Genesis account of this river that brings peace in the city of God. In the midst of uncreation, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of turmoil, there is a river. And it's a river, it's a theme that's picked up by John in Revelation. At the very end of your Bibles, in Revelation chapter 22, John is describing the new heavens and the new earth, the place where God has called us to dwell eternally. And he says in Revelation 22 that there is a river. That there is a river, very similar to what we find in Psalm chapter 46. And that's so important for us to understand because if we understand Psalm 46 and we understand this cosmic upheaval, we see that the new heavens and the new earth is a place where sin is vanquished. Where God's enemies have been defeated. That the fear of kingdoms being uh, destroyed and the fear of uncreation is utterly taken away because of the presence of God. And so we look at Psalm 46 and we have to ask the question, where do you find your confidence? Where do you find your peace? Where do you go in the midst of turmoil and in the middle of frustration and find a sense of calm? Is it in your ability to network? When your back's against the wall, you might be going through the Rolodex in your mind of who do I know? Who can I contact? What connections can I make? We can figure this thing out. I ask our students in RUF, where do we find our confidence? Is it in our theology? We have all the right answers. <laughs> We've got all our apologetics ironed out. We can destroy all of these false arguments. Where do we find our confidence? Is it in God's presence? Is it the fact that this is the dwelling of the Most High? I challenge the students in RUF, and it's a challenge that I ask myself all the time. Is RUF, and it's a question for you in Westminster, Is this a place where people can come and meet God? Is this a place where the presence of God is known? Or for us, is RUF just a place where they have all their theology? (laughs) They sure know what they're talking about. Or is it the place where God is present? Why does that matter? 
remember back in the book of Genesis when God had commanded, uh, God had, God had uh, orchestrated the events in such a way that when you look at the life of Joseph, you see Joseph's life is one act of almost turmoil after another, after another. Here's a, here's a man who was the favorite of his, of his father Jacob, given the coat of many colors, yet his brother sold him into slavery. His brother sold him into slavery, faked his death, and Joseph goes into slavery and he goes to the house of Potiphar. And he orchestrates and he and he and he and he and he he's so successful in all that Potiphar puts him in charge of that Joseph arises to the place of prominence in Potiphar's house. And then what happens? Potiphar's wife basically accuses him of adultery, or of at least trying to commit adultery. So Joseph is thrown into jail. And as he's in jail, he eventually rises to a place of success and leadership again. He's the ruler in the jail of all the other uh, inmates. And then finally, seemingly his break comes when Pharaoh comes and he needs a dream interpreted that God gives Joseph the answer to those dreams. And Joseph rises to a place of prominence and a place of leadership. And the question that you have to ask is, why was Joseph so successful? Why was Joseph so successful in all of these endeavors, in spite of all of this turmoil, sold into slavery, gone into jail? It would seem that his life would be one frustration after another. And Moses, the author of Genesis, is key to point out to us that it's because God was with him. God was with him. It wasn't his success. It wasn't his networking abilities. It wasn't who he knew. It was that God was with him. Do you pray that in your life? That God is with you. That God will show up and that He'll be present present in your midst. As we engage in ministry, do we do we live and do we act as though if God doesn't show up, this will be a complete failure? It's the presence of God in our lives that brings us such confidence. So verses 1 through 6 show us that there is confidence. The writer of Psalms is showing us that even though there's turmoil going on in the world around us, that there's confidence that we have because of God's presence. But then he goes on to show us not just the confidence of God's life, but the effects the effects of God's presence. Not just that he has confidence, but what are the effects of this? If we're going to understand God's presence, we have to understand verses 7 and verse 11. It's the same, it's the same verse. It's the same refrain. Remember, the Psalms are poetry, and verse 7 and 11 are breaking up the two stanzas. And here's what the writer of Psalms says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You can see the theme of this psalm in verse 7 and 11 of God's presence in our lives, of His fortress, that He is a fortress for us. It's interesting, He doesn't just say generically that God is with us. He uses a special, specific title. He says it's the Lord who is with us. Now, as you know, any time when you look in your Bibles and you see L-O-R-D, all in capitals, that that's the covenant name of God. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the name that He revealed to Moses. When God told Moses, go tell the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Because Pharaoh, after all, is the most powerful man in all the world. He could destroy me in an instant. If I'm going to go and tell him, release all your slaves, you've got to tell me who told me to come and give him this message. 
And God told him, you tell him Yahweh sent you. You tell him I am sent you. And you kind of think, well, what does that mean? I am sent you. In essence, God is saying, you tell Pharaoh that the one who needs no explanation has sent you. The one who has no beginning and has no end is the one who has sent you to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh is dependent upon the people's allegiance for his power. Our president uh, is, is, is only in office because of the votes that he receives. And God tells Moses, I am who I am. I need no explanation. And the writer of Psalm 46 says, that is who is with us. The Lord is on our side. Again, not just Yahweh, but he takes it a step further and he says, the Lord of hosts. And the Hebrew would say, Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the armies of heaven who commands the cherubim and the seraphim and who orchestrates all of the heavenly hosts. He is the one who is on our side. It's a picture of God as the great general and commander of all of his armies fighting the battle on our behalf. I remember a few years ago, whenever uh, after the 9-11 tragedy and the United States finally came to the conclusion that we need to go into Afghanistan to help to fight this battle, to root out the Taliban, one of the stories that came out of that was one where our own military, and I can't remember if it was the Marines or the Army, but one of our own U.S. military men parachuting behind enemy lines to be an aid for the local Afghan people. The local Afghanis had their own militia who were fighting the Taliban but were unable to do anything about it. And so the military came to be an aid for them to fight their battles on their behalf. I remember this one particular serviceman saying that whenever he met up with one of these uh, local Afghani militiamen, he asked them, what do you need us to do? And he pointed out on the distance there were two mountains with a pass in between. And he says the Taliban has completely taken that section of land and we can't get past those two mountains. He says the Taliban have this strategic bunker location set up. You can see it on the hill. And every time we pass by, we have lost more people as a result of that place. We need someone to fight for us. This particular serviceman said, you should have seen the look on his face when I called in for air support and they sent a laser-guided missile in to destroy that bunker. He looked at me and knew, this has completely changed. We have the presence of the army on our side of the United States military and it's a power that can defeat all of our enemies. And so the writer of Psalm 46 comes and he tells us, Yahweh Sabiah is fighting for us. He is with us and he is present. What does that mean in terms of us in our lives today? Facing unemployment, facing challenges in this economy, that God is present and he is near. Yahweh Sabiah is fighting on your side. He knows what you're experiencing. It means that even in temptations of sin and even in challenges where you know that you seem to continually fight this battle, this struggle over sin in your lives, that God is present with the command of the armies of heaven to fight on your behalf. God is near. He is a refuge and a place of strength. 
this is what it means to live with confidence and to know that Yahweh, that God, is present even in our lives. That we can live with confidence, not just because He's there, but because of the effects of His life. Because of the effects of His presence and of His work on our behalf. Yet ultimately, as we look at Psalm 46, we have to see that the presence of God is ultimately made manifest in Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of God's presence comes in Jesus. If you think back to the Old Testament, the Israelites knew that God's presence was only found in the Old Testament tabernacle. That this was the place in the tabernacle where God dwells. If you want to meet God, you go to the tabernacle. And the writer, or John, as he writes his gospel, says that when Jesus came, he dwelt among us, he lived among us, he tabernacled among us. Jesus is the very presence of God in this world and in our lives. If you think back to Psalm 46 and the connections to who Jesus was and what Jesus did in his life as he lived with the as he lived with his disciples. You can think of Jesus calming the raging waters that the psalmist is so aware of. As the waters are raging, that Jesus speaks and the waters are still. Do you think of Jesus restoring the relationship between God and sinful humanity? He casts out demons, showing his power over all of God's enemies. He breaks the bond of sin by his death. And sin no longer has mastery over us. It's true that because of Jesus' presence in our lives, he intercedes for us on our behalf. You think back to that Old Testament tabernacle, and the Israelites' only hope for forgiveness of sins was that the priest would go on their behalf, behind the curtain, into the Holy of Holies, and offer the sacrifice of blood, interceding for God's people. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, interceding for us on our behalf, even now presence of God and the presence of Christ in our life can bring this great confidence that we find in Psalm 46. And so the psalmist says in verses 8 and 9, he gives us two commands. The first he says, come, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Come and see. It's a command to come and watch. Come and see that Jesus is going to destroy all of the power of evil. All of the power of sin. It's a theme again picked up in Revelation. As the writer is picturing that final great battle between Jesus and his enemies. And it's a, the words say that Jesus comes in riding, calling to the birds of the air, Come and feast on what I'm about to do. I'm about to destroy the power of sin. And Jesus calling to the birds of the air, Come and feast on the carcasses that are left as I destroy sin and evil. As I destroy the power and the bonds of sin. Yet the psalmist also calls us to consider this in verse 10. And to come and to be still and know that I am God. To come and lay down arms. Come and lay down lay down the fight. And come and be still and know that I am God. It's an invitation to sit with Elijah in that, in that mountainous cave. And to hear God come in a small whisper and reassure him of his presence and of his work. To be still and know that I am God.
Psalm 46 has been a great place of strength for Christians throughout hundreds, thousands of years. And it's a psalm that didn't escape Martin Luther, that great reformer living in Germany. Most of us know sort of a brief, kind of broad outline of Luther's life, the 95 Theses, he challenged the Roman Catholic Church, but we forget to consider that the Catholic Church and the state, the power of the government, were intertwined with one another. For Luther, for Luther to challenge the church was also a challenge to the state, because they both fed their power off of one another. In 1517, Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the, of the castle there in Wittenberg. And only four years later, he was running in fear for his life. He actually lived under, a, under a, an assumed name, Junker George, for a period of time, so people wouldn't know who he was. He tells the story of sitting in a tavern, of meeting these two young men and asking them, have you ever heard of Martin Luther? And they say, yeah, we've heard of him. And they had no idea who they were talking to because he was living and hiding. Frederick the Wise had promised Luther that I will protect you. I have a castle, the Wartburg Castle, where you can live in this fortress, you can live behind this castle, and you'll be free from any of the challenges of life. Luther took him up on that offer. But what we often don't know is that about that same time, there were monks in the Netherlands who were listening to Luther's teachings. They were reading Luther's works. They were aligning themselves with Luther, and three of them paid with their lives as a result of of following the Reformation. Luther knew of this firsthand. He had protection. He was behind the fortress of the Wartburg Castle, but he knew that his colleagues and his friends were being slaughtered for their faith. A time of great cosmic upheaval, a time to challenge and to question what's going on in the world. Yet Luther, based on Psalm 46, writes that great hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. As we close the service today and as we sing that great hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, you can almost trace it through and see the aspects of our lives. It's a timeless hymn and it reminds us of the presence of God in our lives each and every day to bring such great confidence and great courage. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you that you are ever-present. Lord, you know the unique struggles and the unique challenges that each one of us face in this room today. And Lord, I pray that your presence will be known. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will come and that you will be near and that you will reassure us of your love and of your, of your nearness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.